Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we meet an American artist who uses her brush to help ease the pain for those grieving the loss of a pet and find out how she came to paint pet portraits full-time. We speak to a BC doctor who is heading to the front lines of the war in Ukraine for the third time about why the need for her emergency room expertise is so critical and just how much the country is in need of basic and more advanced medical supplies. Global News investigative reporter Stuart Bell joins us to talk about a trip he's taken to the southern Philippines to follow up on what happened to members of the terrorist group Abu Sayyaf responsible for the kidnapping and murder of two Canadians in 2016 and how the killings of Robert Hall and John Ridsdale led to a crackdown on the organization that has seen it all but wiped out. But first, the Canadian Competition Bureau announced today that it will be the latest body to look at the high grocery prices and whether or not the lack of competition in the industry is really hurting Canadian consumers. The Competition Bureau is checking out groceries. They're worried about the high cost of groceries. Um, So they're going to launch a study, they're calling it. Not an investigation, it isn't. It's a study. In a press release, they say they'll be looking into why prices are so high right now, whether a lack of competition in the sector is making problems worse. Quote, more competition means lower prices, the Bureau said. Grocery prices are increasing quickly, so we're going to study how government can take action to improve competition in the sector. Interesting stuff. Now, to be fair, um, the causes are a bit of a mystery. The Results are not, the effects are not. Food inflation up 11.4% in September, the highest in 40 years. Elsewhere, it's kind of the same. Listen, food prices are up in the UK, in the US. The cost of food was up 13.5% in September. So we're by no means alone. But David McDonald, a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, says the efficiencies achieved from increased industry consolidation don't appear to be benefiting consumers. You're seeing food prices and grocery stores now becoming one of the key drivers of inflation. It used to be that this was taking a backseat to things like gasoline, for instance. Um, And now in the last month, it's really driven ahead of the other big drivers of the price inflation in Canada. Certainly, consolidation can lead to more efficiency, but more efficiency does not mean lower prices. It can mean lower prices, but it can just as easily mean higher profits, or it can just as easily mean higher executive compensation. Well, joining me now with more on this is Jake Edmiston. He's a reporter at the Financial Post covering the business of food. What a fascinating time to be on that beat. Jake, thank you for your time tonight. Well, Ben, it's nice to be with you, and it is a fascinating time. It is. I mean, I haven't talked about food prices so much in the last as I have in the last three months or the last 20 years. It's been, uh, been remarkable. So what do you make of this Competition Bureau announcement? I mean, it seems interesting, but um, maybe maybe the devil's in the details there. Definitely, but it is uh, the latest in what seems to be an unrelenting um, series of uh, reputational hits that the, the grocery industry is taking. You know, before that, we had earlier this month, there's a parliamentary inquiry into a, a similar question, more around grocery profits and whether that has driven in, uh, inflation at all. Before that, uh, we had a government investigation into uh, the large grocers bullying their suppliers. Before that, it was the hero pay scandal. Before that, it was the bread price fixing allegations, it goes on. So um, in terms of, in terms of, they just seem to be able to catch a break here. Yeah. So when the Competition Bureau says it's going to study something, I think it's probably important to separate separate that from what else is going on. You mentioned there's the Agricultural Committee, of course, at Parliament who are studying sort of farm to table, if you can excuse that, that expression, uh, along mm-hmm. with other things going on. But this one's really about competition. 
it's about competition, and it's and, and like you said, it, it is it is an important distinction to make. This is this is the the, the bureau is being very careful in and has, has has stressed that that this is just a study and it doesn't even have the power to compel parties to hand over information. But what they're what they're really looking at is, you know, I think uh, there's 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 five major chains that control about eighty percent of grocery sales in this country, and they're looking at whether or not. That has had a role to play in in inflation going up. I've spoken uh, in past to some some veteran grocery executives who are, who are now out of the business and talk a little more freely, and they've said, you know, that would involve, you know, if there was more competition, that the grocers would be, you know, under, under the gun to to take less margin or try try to be more competitive on price. But it just it, 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 they they don't necessarily feel that pressure all the time. That's that's there's some suggestion of that that I'm hearing around, but. But that's that's what you know. We're we're hoping to hear more about out of out of the, this this study when it when the, when they when they release their report in eight months. When we see it, yeah. I mean, you've obviously dug into this quite a bit, I and mean, we've had different people on the show saying different things about uh, yes, you know, the profits are it's greedflation. No, the margins are still low. Why don't you look further down the supply chain? You know, it's it, it, the profits are being or the you know the price rises are coming from somewhere else. What's your take on it? Oh, it's yeah, no, it's I've I've read, written thousands of words on it. It's it's uh, it's there 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 is there's 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 a lot. So let's let's start at yes, we're, we're, you, you mentioned that off the top that there we're, we're there's a, a mess of geo- geopolitical factors that are impacting markets around the world. So we're not alone in the sense that the war in Ukraine in Ukraine has has driven up commodity prices, um, labor shortages. There's a, there's a lot of things that are that are common in, in you know if you look at the UK or any any other any other markets around the world. So so there, there, it's not it's, it's not just a Canadian problem. But then when when we look when you know you the, one of the things is the three biggest um, Canadian grocery chains, blah blah. Uh, Sobeys parent company Empire and, and and Metro they all are they're all public companies so we can go through their public documents and I have had I've worked with some big accounting and auditing experts who have gone through their, their public statements to say okay people like David McDonald who have suggested there you know these there's some there's some economists and think tanks who have suggested you know the margins if you look at margins the margins that the Canadian grocers have increased slightly particularly gross margin and operating margin of the margins that sort of measure it's not they don't measure it's all of the tax and depreciated and it's just you know what's left over when there's when you subtract the cost of goods so it gives you that real real visibility on on you know are they are they just simply passing along higher costs from their suppliers like for those higher commodities or, or, or for those extra labor costs or are they taking extra margin and under under um, because we're expecting, you know, all prices are higher. So are they are they are they needling a little bit more here and there to, to increase their profit margins? So that's what David McDonald and others have pointed to to say, okay, that's that's gotten that's gotten slightly bigger. So there's p- potential for that. But what Law Blah and other other of the big grocers have said, well, there's there's perfectly legitimate reasons for those margins getting a bit bigger. And for example, one of the big explanations they give is that. Consumer preference has swung in a couple of different ways. For example, pandemic restrictions subside and people start going back to work and cosmetic sales, which had fallen off a cliff during the pandemic, they're a higher margin category, they, they start to go back up. And so they're saying, okay, we have this resurgence in cosmetics and health and beauty and pharmacy 
And the auditing experts I worked for say, that's great. That's, that, that's a perfectly plausible answer, but we, we'd like to see a little more detail that we can't find in the, in the public financial statements to bear that out. Now, there yeah, are others people who have... Yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, I guess it's not broken down, right? You can't really see exactly. You can't, you can't go into, a, into their reporting and figure out exactly where the drivers are coming from. Right. But, but essentially, you know, there, there had been some questions about, well, maybe we can get a third-party study that'll look into this. It's, it's not clear that that's where the, the it's pretty, it's, the, the competition bureau has been pretty clear that that's not necessarily where they're looking at. They're looking purely at whether a lack of competition has had a role to play, which is a, a slightly separate question. So I don't know if we'll get to see any more detail, but I can tell you that I've spoken Retail Council of Canada today, who is a main lobby group that represents grocers, and they're saying we welcome the attention. We want to open our books. We 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 want want to participate fully with the with the competition bureau because we we've had it with these narratives. We don't think we're, they're not fair. They're not true, and we we we're, they're, they're sort of looking at this as an opportunity for vindication. And that's what the that's at least what the what the RCC is saying. The Retail Council is saying today. Jake, I was interested looking at your Twitter feed today. You were talking about this quite uh, infamous uh, uh, investigation. I guess it was a, something or other for the Competition Bureau into this bread price fixing thing that is now what seven years old. Still no, still no resolution to that. Yes, I, 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 they, I was because I was talking to the Competition Bureau today. I said, "Hey, by the way, what about the bread price fixing investigation? What's going on with that?" Because I think a lot of um, Consumers would, would think I got my $25 gift card a couple of years back. Uh, I, right. I figure it's an open, open and shut case, but it's, it's not. There, we, even though you have Loblaw coming forward and admitting wrong, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, involvement in the case, there's still, uh, as of today, no charges filed, no, no conclusion of wrongdoing, uh, and the, the investigation is ongoing at the Competition Bureau. So this is a, a years-long investigation. Yeah. It's like seven years. Reminder, a reminder of what it was all about again. They were the allegation was that they were uh, working with with uh, with sort of industrial bakers to try and keep the price of bread higher than it should have been. Yes, for fourteen years it was. A, it, 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 the, as, it, the allegation is that this, this is a this is a fourteen year bread cartel that involves some of the largest retailers and the biggest commercial bread bakeries working together in collusion to fix the price of bread. For Canadian consumers, it's a massive story. It's one that yeah. um, I, I, I think it's uh, you know it's it's something that I, I hope to continue to pay attention to because it's a, it's it's also like it just it's it's uh, fascinating that that it's taken so long uh, that this is an ongoing this is this is an investigation that's dragged on for years uh, without charges. So it's uh, anyway, um, lots more to say yeah. there for sure. Absolutely. And hopefully they'll, uh, well, and, and so do you think this timeline for June of 2023 on this competition bureau look into the competition in the grocery business is a bit, given that, you think this one's a little bit, um, you know, a little bit optimistic? Um, not necessarily. I think I, if anything's an outlier, it might be, it might be that, you know, the, the investigations that that's back to the top of our conversation where we talked about the difference between market studies and, and, and criminal investigations. This, right. the, the scope is, 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 is a lot tighter. The other interesting thing right now is that the competition bureau is looking at market concentration that the competition bureau is responsible for allowing to, ha- to happen in the first place, right? You have these, right. these consolidation between the big grocery chains that's been happening for years and years in the, in the, and the, and the competition of has, bureau has approved it time and again, but I think what's different now is well one of the things that's different now is that you have 
this new head of the competition bureau, Matthew Boswell, who's been called um, the cowboy commissioner, has been called, who has been, you know, very public in his attempts to give the, the bureau more teeth. And this, I was talking to some folks today about how this could be an opportunity. This is a, an example of him making the bureau more responsive to the things that you know Canadians are talking about um, and and trying to be you know. Uh, Ahead, even in today, in the in the, in the in the announcement today, they were very clear about the limitations that the, that the candidate Canada's antitrust regulator doesn't have the same powers as say you know as, as our allies say the United States where they can compel um, parties during that are that are part of their market studies to hand over information where the the, the Canadian version just has to ask nicely. So there are, there is a lot at play here, and I I, I feel like. <laughs> So much going on that sometimes I ramble. So I'll pass back to you. Yeah, no, no. It's it's. Uh, I, I was. Uh, he obviously the new uh, head of the competition bureaus, but trying to make the bureau more relevant to Canadians, and also there's been lots of talk about him trying to make it more pushing it a little bit towards the social side of things too. So obviously, grocery prices is one that certainly affects those uh, who can afford it the least in this country, and I think the competition bureaus trying to be more relevant in that space as well. Interestingly enough, on a day where they made this big announcement, they weren't putting up anyone for interviews today. They were declining all interviews to actually discuss what it is they were going to do so uh so job number one when you put it yeah i know it was great jake yeah, <laughs> you know you're it would have been about six minutes with the uh with the competition bureau and we would have been done um the last question was about this whole law laws no name price thing I w- it, it looked like it really blew up in their face did we ever get a follow-up on that did any other of the chains follow suit was it true that this is sort of a customary this type of year thing where everyone freezes prices on stuff so yeah, I, I did some report. I reported this out, and it's it's, it's there, there. There's I spoke to some sources in in, in, man, in Canadian manufacturing, particularly in food food manufacturing, who this whole thing raised their eyebrows because they said, "Wait a second, don't all Canadian grocers more or less have a moratorium on cost increases at the exact same time that the or at almost the exact same time that that Loblaw was announcing its price freeze between sort of they they're announcing in October, but it's usually between some November and the first month or two of the new year. So between say November and January or February, grocers will not accept price increases or, or often do not accept price increases from their suppliers because mostly because it's the busiest time of year and they want to be laser focused on operational matters rather than changing prices in store and negotiating with their suppliers. They want their reps that negotiate with suppliers to be talking about, you know, as I said, deliveries are on time because this is, this is the holidays are the highest sales volumes and any, any kind of complications. If you lose a little bit of share, that's, you know, that's, that's a major loss for you. So you've got yeah, to be, if somebody- yeah, someone goes to buy their cranberry sauce somewhere else, you know, you're going to be in trouble. Exactly, Jake, we have, to, exactly. we have to leave it at that because I've run out of time. But thank you so much for your time tonight. Always, what a fascinating beat at this time. I hope to catch up. Yeah, we'd love it. That was fun. Thank you. I was trying to think back today to the pets that I lost as a kid because, you know, you you do. We we had a cat when I was really young and, and it, it it left. It ran away, I believe. I had a rabbit named Mirabelle after the airport. Don't ask. I was six. Um, that happens. You know, you're like, oh, I'm going to name it Mirabelle after the airport. It was white, just like uh, Mirabelle. I had a white rabbit named Mirabelle after a white elephant named Mirabelle Airport. Mirabelle also um, uh, passed, unfortunately. I had some fish. They passed too. You sort of, you, you know, you get that attachment to them, even when you're young. It's It's devastating when they die. 
But for people who've had pets for a very long time where that bond, and you know, you see, I mean, I had, I had a dog at one point. Uh, I know lots of people have had dogs for years and years and years. I went and got my haircut today at the barber shop. They have a dog named Pierre who's been around forever. You could just see the attachment there. The love is what it is. Um, so the death can be devastating and it's a death. It's a pain that artist Erica, Eric's daughter knows all too well, because part of why she does what she does is a reflection of the loss of a pet in her childhood that she truly, truly loved. Um, but it's also allowed the Sweden-born painter to help in the best way she can, and that's with a brush. She's now based near Washington, D.C. She spends her days painting portraits of pets, gone, and those that are still here. But in many ways, the process itself is far more uh, therapeutic than you might expect. It's not just commissioning a painting. It's something much deeper than that. And Erica, Eric's daughter, pet portrait artist at Studio Eric's Daughter, joins me now to uh, tell me all about it. And you can go look at studioericsdaughter.com. That's studio, E-R-I-K-S-D-O-T-T-E-R.com if you want to follow along and see your paintings as we chat. Erica, thank you so much for hanging out for that preamble. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me, Ben. This is really, um, I mean, I know that art is something that you were involved with uh, from a very young age, uh, which is interesting. You've, you've been sort of painting since you were a kid. Tell me about that. Yeah, I I was born with the brush in my hand, so to say, speak. Yeah. Um, I was I started painting early on as a seven year old at the dining table in Sweden, where I I was born and raised, and actually sold my first painting at the age of 10. So wow. I, I definitely feel it was it was not a, a necessarily a conscious choice of of picking up a brush. It just found me and it probably does help that I am a third generation painter. Finding that love and feeling the art coming through my my heart, flowing through my arm and through through that brush, it was as natural as breathing for me. You put the brush down for a bit. I guess Professionally, at least, um, you you went off and like so many artists do, you went off and pursued other things. Um, how did you decide to come back? I always return to art. Art has always nurtured me and supported me, and my painting practice has been constant. But as life has it, you kind of want to focus on okay, what sh- what should bring me m- my money? What is the what is going to support me financially in life? And you know, growing up, I thought, well, to be a successful artist, you kind of have to be dead, right? Because the old masters. They were dead. So that was the notion of you can't support yourself by being a full-time artist. So I pursued my other passion, the passion of of being a communicator. So I actually hopped over the the big ocean and studied communication uh, in Virginia in, in the U.S., and got my degree there in communication and PR. And but throughout that, I returned after the studying, I returned to, to doodling a little bit, to painting a little bit. And then once I um, started my corporate career, I also exhibited. That's when I was 25. That's kind of when I started selling art again and um, was lucky enough to get commissions right away and focused on big flower statements, big, bold flower statement, far away from the, the clean, bare 
um, minimal Scandinavian designs, but having combining the U.S. boldness with the, the the Scandinavian clean lines and having those big single tulips showing on a big uh, colorful background, et cetera. So we traveled, my husband and I, we traveled up and down the East Coast, the U.S., and participated in nationally juried art shows. So you're, so you're already well on your way, I guess. What you're now known for is the is pet portraits, and I've obviously looked at a lot of them. And what brought you there? Because it is it is, um, I guess, as an artist, different to sort of focus on one thing. So when I was sitting at that dining table back in Sweden, I often had my beloved Lucas, my Yorkie, in my lap. So I grew up with a a, a dog, like many many children do, and just absolutely fell in love with him. He was my baby brother. I was the last of three daughters. He had that unconditional love. He would sit in my lap at the dining table. He would ride with me going back and forth uh, to swim class. We would sing happy birthday. He would have his own cake and a huge (laughs) impact in my life. And I knew that I wanted to paint him. But the fear of falling short of how much he meant to me that all that fear and self-doubt came came up, right? As often as painters, for us painters, they does. So instead, I reached out to this following that I had gathered over many years of traveling up and down the East Coast and said, hey, do you have, do you happen to have a pet that I can practice on? When I took away that emotional investment and I painted for somebody else and serving them instead of myself, I was able to tap into that uh, that spark and that healing that the painting Memorial Pet Portrait does for, for me and my clients. And that's when all the commissions started rolling in. And today, you know, and since then, I should say, a, a, over a decade, I've been painting pet portraits that lead my clients to a place of healing. Yeah, you've talked about that a lot. And I, I, I gather part of that, too, is that you just don't accept a photo and then go from there and send something back. This is a whole process that you that you uh, that you set out upon with 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 the, with the client to yeah. talk about what the pet meant to them. And, and it's much more than just a portrait. It's much more than an original portrait, indeed, and, and, and much more than a memorial portrait. This is an in-depth experience that leads the client to replacing the, the, the sorrow and the grief and the hurt and the tears coming out to the end when you have a finished portrait uh, to having then happy tears. And my clients re- tell me all the time how deeply impactful this experience is for them and how it, it it leads them to a place of healing where they can finally, you know, have a place of honor of, of this pet that signifies how important their pet was to their family and to their life that eventually goes on to becoming an heirloom and handed down through the generations. How does it work? Because I imagine that there are people out there who think this would be really nice for me to get done, but are they a little shy about the idea of having a portrait painted? Or how do you how do you talk to your clients and how do you bring them to a place where they feel comfortable with both the process and the outcome? Well, it starts with them 
contacted me. So they, I get an email from them and I ask them to tell them their favorite story. How did their pet meet and them meet? Uh, what is the favorite story? How would you describe them? How long were they part of your life? And these stories then continue throughout the whole process. So my portraits are up to, it takes me up to 80 hours of to paint. They're very detailed. And I tap into the animal and they come alive on the canvas. And throughout the process, as soon as I've painted an hour or two in, in, on a, in a day, I send them progress photos. So they get it's like as close to being in the studio with me. They get to be part of the whole process. And through those email exchanges, something will come up. Oh, I remember this story. Oh, I remember. Oh, I don't I don't recall that he had the pattern there on his tail. But now when I look at it, I see it. Right. And all the, it's just a it's a heartwarming story. So instead of looking at the photos that brought them grief, now they're part of the creative process. And they're not only are the memories of their pet included in this in this portrait, but all the memories of creating the portrait with me, of deciding, okay, which hue should be good for the background color? Oh, no, I like that sample better than the other sample. Yes, this is warmer because that was, you know, his his, his character was warmer, so it fits them better. Uh, you know, it's, it's a collaborative pro- process, and that's what makes this process so unique. It is not just... Here's a photo, paint my pet. Here's your finished portrait. It is an experience and it's a journey. And I am very honored to serve my clients in this very unique way. You start with the eyes, I guess, as you've, you've mentioned. I mean, we, we this is a term we often use, but they are the mirror uh, of the soul, right? You start with the eyes. Yeah, for me, it's very important to start with the eyes too. I, I do feel that... Just uh, just like Michelangelo, you know, he carved, he already saw the statue finished in his eyes in this block of marble, but he carved it out. It was the statue was already in there for him. And I see the same thing with my portraits. I I see the pet already on this blank canvas. And when I invite them to come into the studio, I start with the eyes and that's how they come alive, start coming alive on the canvas for me. And it really is true with that, the window to the soul is through the eyes. And unfortunately, if you cannot capture the eyes, it doesn't matter how good you are with the rest of the portrait, it will fall flat. You will not be able to tap into your beloved pet and and view this portrait portrait with all your unconditional love that that the pet had for you you know so it is very important yeah i guess if you don't get the eyes right then something just feels off about it i would imagine that's uh have you had any i mean you do i've seen lots of portraits of dogs obviously and cats is that is that pretty much what you do or have you had any strange requests is there anything you'd like to paint that you have I've had the pleasure of painting lots of beloved uh, dogs and cats. And with a very long wait list, um, I now have the pleasure of also teaching. Maybe my painting students will choose to paint other pets. For example, one painting student is uh, focusing in on horses and doing the healing with around horses. For me, I have yet to come across a lizard, a chicken, 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, that would be a fun experiment. It would be. And, and just so people know, I mean, in terms of cost, I know I, I'm not quite sure what the what the price is now, but I know that you donate some, but some of the proceeds go back to you. This is some of the proceeds go back to animal welfare yeah, as well. Abs- absolutely. So 5% of the proceeds uh, go back to women, children, and animal in need. And that's something uh, giving back through through money or my time has always been an a very important role for me and my studio, Eric's daughter, my company, and and also giving back to students. So the upcoming How to Paint a Dog online course, you know, it's giving people the chance to work through their grief. Maybe they, they cannot do the pet portrait, you know, hire me to do their pet portrait, but they can work through their grief by learning how to paint their own pet portraits. And uh, there's been uh, wonderful Canadians who've gone, uh, finished the course and become a pet portrait artist in their own right. What, the waiting list now, I guess just so so the audience knows, what what is the cost and how long is the waiting list? Because I know it's become very popular. There are a few options. I welcome people to come to the website and check it out and see what works for them. And I guess the obvious question is always, since it's where you started, have you ever painted Lucas? I've yet to paint Lucas, and uh, I feel always when I talk about him, I feel my throat kind of closes in on me yeah. because even though it's been 20 years, and I know that every pet owner uh, can relate to this, even though it's been 20 years, he is so dear to my heart. It is it is uh, challenging to to talk about it because I, I still have grief. The grief is, is tricky. It needs mm. to be witnessed. It needs to be heard. And because of my experience of losing Lucas and having had the heartache and still having the heartache, I am able to harness that and almost with therapy, help other people get over their loss of their animals. And through every single pet portrait that I have the honor of painting, I'm healing a little bit of the grief that I am sharing um, about Lucas. Erica, Eric's daughter, thank you so much for your time. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Thank you for having me. I don't know how much you've been paying attention to news out of Ukraine recently. There was um, a tweet today from Kira Rudik, who's been on the show before. She is an MP or member of the uh, of parliament in Ukraine. And she was tweeting out a picture of Kiev in the dark tonight. Because you probably have been reading and seeing um, that the Russians have been targeting infrastructure well behind the front lines like hundreds of kilometers behind the front lines have been targeting Ukrainian infrastructure, basically trying to leave the place dark and cold as we head into winter. And as we've said many times on this show, if you want to know what the weather's like in Eastern Ukraine and you happen to live on the prairies, then step out the door because that's exactly what it's like. It looks like it and it feels like it. It's um, it's that same kind of, as you get into October, you get that same chill in the air. I've been there in the spring, been there in the summer, been there in the fall. Uh, one each, I think, or maybe it was winter, actually. I think I was there in the winter, uh, but it's cold. Um, the U.S. and key Western allies tonight are accusing Russia of using Iranian drones to attack civilians and power plants in Ukraine in violation, of course, of a 2015 U.N. Security Council resolution and international humanitarian law. In addressing the Security Council, a U.K.'s deputy ambassador to the U.N. Uh, says that Russian drone strikes are a terror tactic. Russian attacks mean that Ukrainians are losing their ability to heat their homes and cook their food. The intent behind these attacks is clear. Russia is seeking to subjugate Ukraine by terrorizing civilians. 
Indeed. And they have been doing that since the get-go in this latest phase of the war uh, that began back in February. So as winter approaches, the war continues and the attacks on civilians continue and on infrastructure continues. The need for help, medical help specifically, shows no signs of slowing. And that's where our next guest comes in. Dr. Tracy Parnell is based in Cranbrook. Uh, She's been getting set to return to Ukraine. This week, I believe, a little later this week, to help medical teams there coping with what she calls a catastrophic situation. She's also raising money to bring much-needed medical supplies to the country, everything from tourniquets to stretchers. Uh, And joining me now is Dr. Tracy Purnell, who specializes in emergency medicine and is also an expert in crisis and disaster management. Dr. Purnell, thank you so much for your time. It sounds like you're perfectly suited for that conflict, and that's saying something. Well, thank you very much for having me, Ben. It's quite an honor to speak with you. Um, And I'm very fortunate to have a unique skill set that is sadly um, being put to use in uh, in Ukraine. Um, And as you sort of led with the the catastrophic effects that are happening there, I I think we only get a glimmer from, from the news and you know, perhaps from, from Facebook, but to actually be there and to see the extent of not only the infrastructure damage, which, as you pointed out, is going to be more extensive now. They're really targeting, you know, previously safer places. Um, but the, the devastation with regards to the number of patients being wounded and and the extensive wounds that these people are receiving, it's uh, sadly unlike anything I've ever seen before. Yeah, I, I, can, I don't even think I can begin to imagine what it's been like. Mm-hmm. And I've been there at times of conflict, but nothing like this. Um, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, truthfully, it's not something we see much of, too. And that's been done no. on purpose. I remember one person comparing uh-huh. this to seeing a war where we're seeing a boxing fight where you only see one person getting punched because the Ukrainians yeah. have been so effective at trying to keep a lot of that imagery, uh, a lot mm-hmm. of those images out. Um, mm-hmm. How about your, are you packed? Are you ready to go? Um, well, I, I really haven't entirely unpacked, so the, the, right. the clothing gets changed, but all the other body armor and all that other stuff sort of stays in the uh, stays in such. Um, but I, I am adding a winter sleeping bag and a few other things uh, along the front. We've kind of become accustomed to not having running water or adequate, you know, toilets and no, you know central heating. Um, right. But that's sadly now something that we have to be prepared for, even even when we're back from the front um, in transition back and forth. Um, so we'll, um, we'll do our best to be ready you'll make, for that. You'll make do, yeah. It's getting, it's yeah. getting cold there too. Uh, tell me about your decision oh. to go back. Yeah, it's, I mean, you've been, you've been there twice yeah. already, I understand, and this, is, this will be number three. Yeah. What, what yeah. made you decide to go back so soon? What we need is, is just so overwhelming, and I've been fortunate. I've been working with the, the Paragoff First Volunteer Mobile Field Hospital, um, which is a Ukrainian uh, charity and NGO that um, basically they run physicians. It, it, it's based on the concept of, of MASH, the, the founder. Right. Um, uh, saw MASH when he was, you know, growing up and, uh, and and thought that was a good model 
Um, and so these are, you know, doctors from Ukraine that volunteer, uh, usually on a monthly rotation. But they're finding it harder and harder to, to find physicians. Not only are they losing physicians to, to the war, but, um, you know, the, the need is growing elsewhere as well. So um, they, they asked if I would be able to return and then help them. You know, we're really trying to get them to become um, that they have the trained physicians. They have some equipment, but not the sort of equipment that we would have here, even in our you know, rural community ambulances. So you can imagine doing, um, you know, mash type work, right. but actually not having a field hospital. <laughs> it, yeah. it's, it's, it's scary in, in so many ways. So we're really trying to, you know, rally around and support them and, and get equipment. And they take a lot of the equipment and they share it amongst um, other NGOs or other medical personnel along the front lines because, you know, very few organizations um, want to be on the front lines, which is entirely understandable. It's a very active war zone. Um, so I'm very, you know, I'm, again, very fortunate to have this opportunity. But um, uh, I wish I wish I didn't. You know, I, I wish I could go and, and have a, you know, a lovely holiday uh, in Ukraine. But that's not the case yet. Maybe one day. Um, I yeah, I remember, I remember, I remember that, that strange thing where you're in a war zone and you're at, you're sort of at your hotel and then you're putting on your, your gear, you're putting on like yeah. your, you know, your, your military vest and so on and your, your bullet, yeah. your basically your body armor to head right, to the front exactly. and you're thinking, yeah. I, yeah. And, and I mean, it's much more dangerous where you're going now, although are you headed back to sort of Donetsk in that area? Are you Are going into that same I I am. So I'm, I'm going, yeah. um, I'll probably be traveling through the five different sites that the, the Pirogov Padamsha is the, is the abbreviation in, in Ukrainian. Right. Um, but yeah, so Slovyansk and Bakhmut are sort of some of the favorite visiting spots from my last two yeah, uh, trips over I, I, there. And it's a very, challenging places to work. They are. Sure. I was in Slovyansk when this all started, actually. A lot of this, the really? first sort of major set-off of this war was back in Slovyansk in it 2014. Was. Yeah, and it was, yep. um, I kind of, I see pictures of it now, and of course, I don't recognize it anymore, because I know. You can't, oh, you don't, you know. No, it, it's horrible, the, the destruction that, that's happened there. Um, you know, you look at the buildings, and you just, I mean, I, I think I have the same sort of experience that you had, where it's like, hmm. It, it, you feel like you're kind of in a in a really bad war movie, except for it's very real and and yeah. more intense than than it was. And, and I also loved your earlier analogy where you're you're talking about it being similar to the prairies because I I kept having this almost flashback in my head where I'm like, wow, that just that just looks like you know I'm traveling to to Alberta and and to Saskatchewan and except yep. for the smoke and bombs in the you know, on the skyline. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and it is, yeah, it does feel a lot like, um, well, I can imagine that's one of the reasons that so many people from that part of the world felt so at yeah. home here is that it kind of looks Absolutely. and feels somewhat the same. Um, yeah. So you gathered a lot of stuff, right, um, to try and bring over. I mean, we did interviews yeah. at the outset where we had sort of people who were over there, students yeah. who were sort of sourcing stuff like bandages because they didn't have right. them. Exactly. Exactly. So my first trip, I, I 
bought a bunch of stuff and some people had donated things and I, I took that over, which was logistically very challenging. <laughs> um, and, and unfortunately, a lot of it uh, was stolen during the travel. So that was very disheartening. Wow. Um, but the, the need is just overwhelming. And I, I want to emphasize, people are so generous. But what they really need right now is quality, you know, fairly expensive equipment that they are entirely lacking. I mean, they have very few monitors, you know, defibrillators, not that we use that a lot, but the monitor component, you know, no capacity to, to run IV medications. Sometimes right. they're doing surgery and, and they're literally just trying to push IV medications into the into the patient and, and they kind of wake up and then they give them medications again. I mean, can you imagine being that patient or being that physician? I mean, it's, it's an awful way to do, but you know, IV pumps are seven to $10,000, um, you know, monitors are $33,000, even things like high quality tourniquets. And sadly, um, there are a lot of not high quality tourniquets that have made it into Ukraine and it's cost people their lives so i really encourage people rather than going and dusting off the old first aid kit downstairs if people could donate funds to help us get this sort of high quality high level equipment that these physicians need to be able to do the job that that's being demanded of them it would make a huge huge difference to to the patient outcome literally saving lives on a it, daily would literally, basis by the it would literally be saving lives. Yeah. How does this one feel, Trace, Doctor Parnell? I shouldn't call you Doctor Parnell. How does Tracy's this feel? Fine. I Trace know is fine. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's just a, it's, it's a familiarity slip. Um, there how does you it go. feel this I'm time around? <laughs> this time around compared to past times. Well, I, I have to be honest. I'm a little more nervous about this trip than I have been in the past. Um, because the need is, is actually greater, and I, I feel the weight not only of just wanting to go and help, but of trying to to help the organization, the the Paragraph First Volunteer uh, Mobile Hospital folks, be able to, to meet the needs that are being asked of them. Um, I also, you know, those, those drones, um, I, you know, I had friends that were in, uh, Kiev, people I had worked with with Padempsha that were in Kiev when the drone struck. And it's like something out of a really bad, you know, sci-fi movie. Um, and um, and then the bomb that actually hit um, Shevchenko Park in, in Kiev. I, I didn't spend a lot of time in Kiev, um, but... I was having meetings there on my transition back, and I actually stopped in Shevchenko Park and stood right where that bomb fell and watched a dad playing with his daughter and, and, and commented to my nurse colleague that, you know, this could just all be gone in, in just a heartbeat. And then to see it on the news was a little bit more shocking. Just, you know, when... I think it's the, the sense that places where you sort of felt a little safe actually are no longer safe havens. And so it, it brings the level of uh, intensity for this trip up a little bit. But I'm looking forward to getting there and being able to 
to start helping. Um, I'm just hoping that I can, you know, deliver on some of the equipment needs for them as well. Yeah. Do you have a lot more? I mean, that's that's part of the whole psychology of this. By on the Russian yeah. side, is to is to instill Absolutely. that fear, right? The, you know, the idea yeah. of these loud suicide Iranian drones and so on. I mean, it's mm-hmm. all there to to try to strike the fear of the fear into, yeah. into your heart. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 the bravery it takes, the courage it takes to go back off, to be honest with you, Tracy, that's, it's remarkable. It is. Well, I, I, I kind of, you know, I'm not the brave one. The, the brave ones are the people who actually volunteer and, and stay. I mean, the, they're there and they don't get to go home. I kind of come, I do stuff, you know, I'm hoping to do a, a, a significant stint and, but I always have the option to go home. They, they're fighting for their lives, and, and there's not really a home for a lot of them to go back to. So I don't think I'm that brave. I think they're the brave ones, and they inspire me and, and others uh, as well. If people want to help out, I know there's a number of ways they can sort of find you, but what would be the easiest way to, uh, to go and see, have, get an idea of what it is that you're doing, and if they want to yeah. donate, how to? Well, there's, there's a, a couple of ways. Um, the first is that we've, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to partner with um, CTOMS, C-T-A-O-M-S, O-M-S, which is a, a company that specializes in combat and tactical medical supplies in Edmonton. And I was sort of, you know, I, I'm a physician. I'm really good if you get blown up. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't really want to, I don't have the time to start up a charity and do all of this, but people are, you know, begging for some of these supplies. So they said, well, we, we could actually take direct transfers. People want to call us up and just say, here, put this amount on my credit card. We'll, we'll put aside a bunch of supplies and then whatever amount gets paid down by the time you're ready to have it shipped over, then, then that's what we bring over. So they've been really good. So they can be reached um, at um, Allison at ctoms.ca, which is A-L-L-Y-S om at cclums.ca and then of course the the people that are really close to my heart who are really on the front and, and are doing this is the, the paragraph first volunteer mobile hospital folks um and and there's desperate need. i mean i feel almost guilty because there's so much need and and uh, it seems like there's so little that we can do but um they're always in desperate need of, of financial support or anyone has big ideas, we would love to hear it as well. And that's at MedBAT, Medical Battalion, shortened, yeah. .org, .ua, forward slash EM, if they want it in English. Um, right. And, and then our logistics, sorry, go ahead. We're just, we're just getting low on time here. Tracy, I want to wish you yeah. the, the, I want to wish you with all my heart a safe trip. Thank you very I much. I, I look forward. I look. So I look much. forward to talking to you while you're there when you get back, and I'll share Absolutely. some of those other details with the audience, with listeners, as we go through the Perfect. evening as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, and thank you for your support for Ukraine. It's greatly appreciated. You probably don't spend as much time following news cycles as I do. I spend a lot of time following news cycles, and one thing that you always notice about news cycles is how often something huge will happen. Everyone will talk about it for a certain period of time. And then it's as if it never happened or people forget about it completely. Or you're like, oh yeah, right, that. And there are some stories that are probably more surprising in how quickly they are forgotten than others. And this one is one of them. 
probably because of where it happened. It happened a long way away from here. But it's been seven years now since two Canadians were kidnapped from a resort in the southern Philippines and killed by militants with Al-Qaeda and ISIS affiliation, a group called Abu Sayyaf. 68-year-old Calgary businessman John Ridsdell and 66-year-old Calgarian Robert Hall uh, were captured alongside Hall's girlfriend, who was from the Philippines, and a Norwegian marina manager at the resort they were at. Both Canadians were killed after their repeated ransom demands uh, reported to have been in, in the area of several million dollars went unmet. Later, though, um, Robert Hall's sister was was quite scathing about what she thought. We Canada obviously doesn't negotiate officially, does not negotiate with terrorists, so we did not. Uh, but a sister of Robert Hall later demanded an inquiry into how the Liberals handed the kidnapping of her brother and the others, saying that, uh, quote, government officials literally did the least they possibly could to help rescue her 66-year-old brother. That very same year, Trudeau, though, spoke about the deaths of Hall and Ridsdale as his single greatest personal regret as leader in that year. But if I had to pick a low point for me personally uh, last year, uh, it was the deaths of two Canadians um, by the Abu Sayyaf group in, uh, in the Philippines, which was something that uh, obviously was um, personally difficult uh, for me uh, as I had... Uh, the responsibility for uh, directing and, and um, articulating the Canadian position, uh, but also the opportunity and the uh, responsibility to speak with their families. Uh, I think uh, reflecting on the fact that we live in a very dangerous world uh, and uh, the responsibility that any government has uh, to keep its citizens safe now and in the future uh, needs to be top of mind. And any time um, situations come up in which uh, we lose lives like that, uh, it's going to be difficult for any leader. That was the Prime Minister back in 2016 reflecting on the deaths uh, of the two Canadian hostages in the Philippines. It really was a horrific, horrific crime. Um, they were beheaded, as was often happening in those days, on video. Um, and then we didn't talk much about what happened afterwards. What happened to those responsible for this? Well, Global Stuart Bell went back to the southern Philippines to find out. And thanks to his reporting, we're learning more about the details about behind what happened after the killings how it prompted a move to take down Abu Sayyaf and its leaders, including all those involved in the kidnapping and the killing of the Canadians, and how the man believed responsible for wielding the blade that took the life of those two men is now in custody in the Philippines and facing trial. Joining me now is Stuart Bell. He's a national online journalist with Global News and part of the investigative team, and he mostly covers foreign affairs and national security. Stuart, thank you. Welcome to the show. Yeah, well, thank you. It's one of those stories that was really big and just kind of disappeared. And so it was really time to go back and, and find out what had happened since then. Yeah, just as a reminder to listeners about what happened then and then what you, what you went back to find out. Well, in, uh, in 2015, uh, two Canadians were kidnapped from a marina in the southern Philippines, along with two others, a Filipina and a Norwegian. And uh, they were kidnapped by a group called Abu Sayyaf, which... Uh, based in the Philippines and uh, an Islamist extremist group that at the time was aligned with ISIS. And um, 
you know, they'd been doing a lot of these kidnappings uh, around that time. It was really their source of power. Um, they used it to they used the the ransom money to buy weapons and ammunition and to buy off supporters, frankly. And, uh, you know, as with many of these cases, um, Canada was really paralyzed by this situation. Um, you know, the, Canada's policy was not to pay ransoms. Uh, and that's, um, you know, it was a, it was a very difficult time. It was the, the premier, the prime minister has said how it was really, you know, his toughest moment um, at that time. And ultimately, uh, no ransoms were paid. And um, the two Canadians were beheaded on video. And the videos were publicly released. So it was really, it was an awful moment. I think a lot of Canadians felt the powerlessness and outrage of the images that were coming out of that time of Canadians with uh, with knives at their throats and terrorists making ultimatums. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, to think back to that time, that was at the time where a lot of ISIS videos coming out of the Middle East were showing similar things. This was a part of something that had become uh, quite gruesomely common at the time. You went back to find out what had happened to those who were thought to have been responsible for the kidnappings and the deaths of, of Robert Hall and, and John Ridsdale. Uh, what did you discover? Well, I mean, there had been a trickle of stories emerging from the Philippine press of arrests of people that were allegedly connected to the kidnapping and killings, frankly. And um, so I began to look into it, and it, it just seemed that there was actually quite a few. And so when I went back, I found that there had been a lot. Um, a lot of people had been either arrested or surrendered uh, through a surrender program that's been set up. Or um, they'd been killed, frankly. A lot of them have been killed. And uh, so what we were, I was able to do is sort of go back. Uh, I was able to get a lot of information about the investigation and then trace the people that had been um, identified as the key kidnappers and find out their fates. And frankly, a lot of them are dead. Um, a lot of them were killed in, in various operations over the last few years. One was just killed. A few weeks ago, Frank, uh, honestly, trying to escape, apparently, from prison in Manila. Um, but some of them captured, and among those captured was um, just a few months ago, a guy by the name of Ben Tatu, who uh, is the man seen on the videos uh, beheading the two Canadians. This was... Um... And and it's not, and you pointed out in the articles that you've written that there was a direct link between what happened to the two Canadians and the crackdown on Abu Sayyaf. Uh, for listeners who don't know, of course, there was active terrorism groups in, in the southern Philippines and have been for quite a while. Yeah, the I think the crackdown that has taken place over the past few years was directly um, a result of that. I think that uh, that kidnapping and those killings were just so uh, they they got such global attention, just so horrific uh, that and there have been there have been all, all kinds of kidnappings and and killings and beheadings in fact before that, but um, I think this one was really uh, it just it led to a desire um, among the Filipinos to just to put an end to this, and uh, there was a crackdown that began and it was kind of in fits and starts but really in the last couple of years and particularly the last year it's really um it's really shown results with with just the waves of surrenders um a lot of arrests 
and quite a few killings. Yeah. Did you ever establish how much of a rescue attempt there had been at the time? Because I know there's one part of the article that you put out just today that that speaks about a desire, at least, that the the Filipino military were quite close at one point to rescuing uh, Robert Hall and John Ridsdale, but they were being moved around at such at such a fast pace it was hard to find them but that we had come close yeah i mean i was able to get access to some fascinating documents that really told the story of what was going on um and yes the the kidnappers were moving the uh, their hostages frequently almost every night to to really remote inaccessible locations on the island of jolo which is not a big island it's about the size of the city of toronto but it's, you know, it's a very uh, remote, inaccessible area. And um, there were they were being tracked uh, by the Philippine, various groups in the Philippine military, and they believe they came very close. Uh, in fact, there was an engagement uh, the night before John Risdell was killed um, where they believe they, they almost got them, but they just weren't able to. There was such um, fierce resistance and of course, the difficulty of rescuing hostages is you don't want to go in and, and have them killed as a result of your rescue. So uh, the Philippine military backed off and, uh, you know, and we know the results. So you've gone back now and, and, and you were saying that that even now, I mean, the, the group itself who, who made a lot of headlines and, and kidnapped a lot of people over that time is just a, a shell of its former existence now. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I took um, uh, fr- I went from a city called Zamboanga by overnight ferry, which is really the only way to get there, down to Jolo, which used to be the um, you know it used to be the lair of of Abu Sayyaf, and um, you know there are remnants of, of Abu Sayyaf around, um, but you can you can see some of the transition. Oh, I spoke to um, to a former fighter who had surrendered. Um, the the beach even where they used to bring ashore people that were kidnapped at a place called Prang, um, and uh, this is where the Canadians were also brought ashore after they were kidnapped. Um, it, it was interesting because you know it, it was the sort of central hub of Abu Sayyaf, and now there's resorts that are springing up and and people you know, swimming and kayaking and paddleboarding and and singing karaoke. So it was. Is interesting, but there are still a few remnants of Abu Sayyaf that are believed to be out there. Um, but you know, you can tell the organization really is is significantly weakened. I think they've lost a lot of the public support that they'd relied upon in various communities. And you know, there hasn't been a kidnapping for uh for two years now. So they just aren't able to do what they used to do, which is to to really paralyze foreign governments with these kind of, um, you know, kidnapping of their citizens and and these ultimatum videos that was really their source of power in the past. Yeah, you referred to it as a, from terrorism to tourism in that area, which is a which is a which is an age old uh, mm-hmm. tactic as well. When you spoke to those who were responsible uh, for the kidnappings, or at least people who'd been involved in the kidnappings, not necessarily those who had held the knives or so on. Did you hear anything about that time about about their experience with the Canadians, what it was like? Uh, I, I did speak to one um, fellow who had been a guard, and uh, he just he didn't seem to he didn't think much about it at the time. But he said that when he later heard that they'd been beheaded, he felt bad about it. He felt sorry about it. Um, ben Tattoo and his brother we saw in prison. 
but neither of them would speak to us. But they clearly did not look happy to be, uh, you know, to be in the situation. The tables are really turned. This, you know, Tattoo was a guy who his job was to take hostages. His job was to, you know, to keep prisoners and guard them. And now he's in the reverse situation and he doesn't seem pleased about it. Um, but he's facing a lot of different charges, including for the killing of these two Canadians. And he will stay there, presumably, and face trial in the Philippines. There's no chances of him being charged here, I'd imagine. The, there is a trial that is beginning. It's it's being held in Manila for security reasons instead of in the South. And my understanding from speaking to Canadian officials is that Canada will not be uh, seeking to bring him or any others to Canada to stand trial. They will allow these cases to uh, to play out in the Philippines. A legacy of this case then, because as you mentioned, uh, it was it was one of those cases that received so much attention at the time and, and it was it, and just the way it unfolded and the tragedy behind it all and the amount of sympathy for Robert Hall and John Ridsdale uh, at the time, that it's true, we'd sort of lost touch with what had happened. But what do you think the legacy of of their tragic deaths would be? Well, probably one of the most fitting um, resolutions of a, an incident like this, or, or maybe the most fitting way of, of honoring people like these two Canadians, is the destruction of the organization that caused them such suffering. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, I mean, they're not here to know that, unfortunately. But uh, hopefully their families and the survivors of Abu Saif will know that um, this organization has been dealt with and that it's no longer it just no longer is even capable of doing the kinds of things that it did in the past. And hopefully this era of, of just, you know, brutal kidnappings and and murders um, that really gave uh, the Philippines uh, a bad reputation. Hopefully that's something that they can put behind them. Stuart Bell, a fascinating story. I suggest people go read it on globalnews.ca. There's also a TV story as well. And Stuart, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. 